having sung about the depth of our need, we are led to ask, who can fulfill that need? And so in connection with that, we will be reading from Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2, the verses 1 to 10. And that will be related to the summary of God's word, which we can find in Lord's Day 11. Ephesians 2, the verses 1 to 10. You'll be able to find that on page 1343 of your pew Bible. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of God. This afternoon we will also be reading together from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 11, the first Lord's Day under the heading God the Son in our redemption. And you'll be able to find that on page 526 of your book of praise. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Because he saves us from all our sins and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No. Though they boast of him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior, Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept the Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, today we have had the blessing and the privilege to watch the profession of faith of four young people. Sisters and brother here in particular, today you have publicly professed your faith. Among the things that you have professed, you have professed that you put your trust in your only Savior, Jesus Christ. You have confessed, as we read in our passage today, that by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Back when the Heidelberg Catechism was written, such a confession could have landed you in hot water. The Heidelberg was adopted by a synod in Heidelberg and then published with a preface written by Frederick the Elector dated January 19, 1563. 
This was a time when there was a great religious divide in Europe, and men who wrote this catechism had in mind the men who are on the other side of the divide, men who were in the Roman Catholic Church, teaching doctrines that went against what they taught here. The men of Heidelberg said of them, though they boast of him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior, Jesus, for one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept this Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. But is this a fair way to paint them? What does what they say look like? What does Scripture say in response to that? And and how can we be faithful that we don't stumble in the same way looking to other things for our salvation? Well, to answer the first question, let's take a quick look at another document of that era, the Canons of the Council of Trent, a document that was formulated during the Council of Trent, which was a, a church meeting of the Roman Catholic Church that lasted from 1545 to 1563. By the way, much of this document has parts that we would agree with, even declaring that Jesus Christ was the only way to God. But sadly, not all of it follows through on that. After declaring that you can only be saved through Christ, in session 6 of the Council of Trent, chapter 5, we read this. This synod declares that in adults, the beginning of justification which means to be declared righteous before God. The beginning of justification is to be taken from the preventing grace of God through Jesus Christ. That is to say, from his vocation, by which, without the existence of any merits on their part, they are called. But pay special attention here, what they say in following that. That, so that they, who through sins were turned away from God, may through his quickening and assisting grace be disposed to turn themselves to their own justification by freely assenting to and cooperating with that said grace. Note what they say here. They just declared in the very first part of that that they are called through Jesus Christ without the existence of any merits on their part. But God's calling only goes as far as to give man assisting grace, helping grace. Grace that gets man on his feet and lets him figure out his own justification for the rest with a bit of guidance on this side. According to this document, God says, I will take you so far, I'll get you on your feet, and you need to turn to receive your justification. This is not to say that all members of the Church of Rome believe this today, but this is to say that this is what their religious documents say, still recognized by their Pope today. But often that's kind of where we tend to lean to, isn't it? In our minds if we don't watch ourselves. If we're not careful, we sometimes follow that same pattern of thought. Yes, we confess that everything is done through grace, that God grants us salvation through grace, but then we still have this small part in our minds 
that can be tempted towards the thought, but then I have to contribute. God has led me so far, and then in order to be saved, I need to add a little bit more. It's the same line of thinking. What Jesus Christ did was not quite enough, or maybe it was enough for everyone else, but it was not quite enough for me. I need to add a little bit more. Canon 12, at the end of this session, goes further of this counsel, goes further to say, if anyone shall say that justifying faith is not else but confidence in the divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake. So if justifying faith is confidence in God's mercy towards us, and that it's by this confidence alone that we are justified, that through faith in Jesus Christ, through believing in Jesus Christ alone, we are justified, that God declares us righteous through believing in Jesus Christ alone, they say, let him be anathema, which is to say, let him be eternally condemned. Justification means to be declared legally righteous before God. And for us, we confess that. We believe that it is for the sake of Jesus Christ alone. It means that Jesus paid everything and that he is the only way, truth, and life. And there is no way to the Father except through him. It's not just God giving us assisting grace. It's not just God helping us. Because to say that would be to radically underestimate our fallen condition. We just sang about that earlier. We sang about that in that hymn, and lost is our condition. But more than that, to say that God is doing the first part and then mainly assisting us for the rest is to boast of Jesus' sacrifice in words, saying it's not on the basis of our own merits, but God does it all, but then we have to do a little bit more. That's to say that God Pardon me, it's to boast of Jesus' sacrifice in words, it was enough to get you so far, but then to completely strip it of its power. It's not enough to save you. You need to go on yourself beyond that. According to this canon of the Church of Rome, if you believe that faith is nothing more than confidence in Christ's work, you don't need, you believe you don't need your works or the other things on the side because Christ has already completed it all for you. If that's what you believe, you'll go to hell. But today, among other things, the four of you are taking a bold stand to the contrary. You are declaring before God and his witnesses in this church today that Jesus Christ is the only ground for your salvation. You are declaring that as we read in our passage, I was dead in my transgression and sin. There was nothing more I could do. God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, even when we were dead in our sins, not able to do anything right before God. It's this God who made us alive together with Christ. Did you catch that last bit? He made us alive together with Christ. You're not made halfway alive and then told to struggle the rest of, your, the, rest of the way to life by yourself. You are declared by God to be made as alive spiritually as Christ was made alive physically. 
You are brought from darkness into light. You are brought from death into life. There is no gray area between, no area of shifting shadows. But in Christ, you are now in the light. You know this, and you confessed it. And now today, in particular, you are living it. There is nothing else that can help you, and this is good news. Because we have no need to look for further intercession. As one church father said, if I needed to add one sigh to my salvation, I would be eternally lost. We don't need a priest to intercede for us. We don't need to pray for a family member to put in a good word in heaven on our behalf. And we don't need to struggle through to do the rest ourselves. God's declaration made it true once and for all that we are made alive together with Christ. But we're not perfect, comes the protest to this. We're not perfect. You would think that if we were brought from death into life, from darkness into light, you would be able to see that, right? We would be living a life of perfection from here on. And it's true, we're not perfect. Not yet. But that doesn't make what God says in this passage here any less true. It doesn't make us any less alive. He speaks in present terms when he talks about us being made alive together with Christ. And in verse 6, further, we read that we are raised up with him. And we are made to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He declares it as a present reality. This has already happened. In order that we may be showed the exceeding, the overflowing riches of God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. This is the present reality that we live in. The technical term that theologians often give this is that we live in the already but not yet phase of history. The promises are already ours, and we taste them in part, but we do not yet experience them in their fullness. Now, because we don't experience them in their fullness yet doesn't mean that they're any less ours, but it does mean that we have something that we can look forward to and put our confidence in, put our faith in. We have a God who has taken hold of his people and leads them on. There is so much on the line with the confession that you've made today. There is so much on the line, but it's not a risk at all. Because we know in whom our hope is founded. We know that when Jesus Christ said those final words on the cross, it is finished. That it was finished. Christ declared it. And God confirmed it, seating him at the right hand. And so for us, though we face our struggles with sin on a daily basis, we can rest in the assurance and in the confidence that our debt is paid in full. It has already happened. God speaks of our being raised up and seated with Jesus Christ because he has confirmed it to be true. 
We have been moved from the criminal's box before the king in the arena of judgment to the seat of honor beside him reserved for his child. And while we only experience that in part now, we will experience it in full in due time as children of the king. And this is all because of the grace of God. We see this further highlighted and further emphasized in the very next verses of our passage today. Verses 8 and following. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That not of yourselves. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Even that faith is not of yourselves. It's not something that you can take hold of with which you can turn and receive the justification of God. No, it's something that God gives you. Even that faith is a gift. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Works don't play into it. For when we are in Christ, then we are made new, brought from darkness into light. We are a new creation. And as we read in verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works are then not something we add to our salvation, but good works are a sign that we are in Christ. Good works are that light that shines in the darkness, the evidence that God is at work in this individual, in this broken person, this person who is being made whole, who has been made whole in Jesus Christ. Christ said, you'll know a tree by its fruits. But these fruits don't make us any more or less in Christ for doing them. These works are the grace of God. They are the evidence of God's work. And our salvation itself is granted to us through Christ alone. Beloved, as our catechism says, there's no salvation or well-being to be found in saints, in ourselves, or anywhere else. And in ourselves is probably the greater sticking point for us. But here it's good to be reminded again that it can be only found in Jesus Christ. Today, you young people have the opportunity to praise God for this truth in a special way. And you're declaring that you live in the reality of God's promise to you through Jesus Christ. And because of what he has done for you, you're declaring that you want to follow him completely. As he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he who loves you makes it possible for you to begin to walk in them, to live in them, until more and more you reach that final day in which all will be made perfect and new. And you'll be able to walk as, you'll be able to walk in the fullness of that reality that you are the child of the king, without struggling with former sins, without struggling with former doubts. You will be living in the fullness of it. So today you are on the beginning of that journey. It's not a graduation, but 
is an acknowledgement that you are totally dependent on Christ Jesus from the beginning to the end for your salvation. Today, we can be thankful that we live in a time of relative tolerance and peace in which you can do this without facing much hostility. But let us never forget what God has granted to us. And let us never forget the cost of that memory of what God has granted to us, what it costs so many people to hold fast to that. Let us never forget that this was a truth that so many ended up paying their lives for. Let us also never forget that it is by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, through the power of the Spirit, that we can continue to hold fast to this truth. Because when we think about situations like that, it can be so easy to think, oh, I don't know if I would stand firm. I don't know if I would be brave. Of ourselves, we wouldn't, but we have the Spirit working in our, in our hearts, transforming us each and every day to hold more tightly to that promise. Being new creations in Him, let us live together for Him, brothers and sisters. Let us walk in His footsteps, in the strength that He provides for us. And let us seek to follow Him in all good works, praising Him for being our salvation. Amen.